Well, good evening, Australia. It is so much fun being here in Australia. I keep pinching myself, realize that I'm here way down where you guys live. This has been a very, very thrilling few days for Meg and me, seriously. Um, um, we were actually we're kind of on a long trip. We've been uh, traveling for several weeks, and last week we were in New Zealand with uh, Russ and Liz. So I don't know, does everyone know your brother? Okay, so anyway, so that was a really great uh, week down there. And then we were able to come here. Uh, Jeff had written me and he said, hey, we'd met back at Master's Seminary, I think at a Shepherd's Conference. He said, hey, do you want to come down to Australia to go to a conference? If you go to New Zealand, just like a little hop, eight hours, you know, <laughs> everything's so big here. So I, we did the little hop. And here we are with you, and it's just been so great. Thank you so much to Jeff and Vailme for your uh, wonderful hospitality. And today, we did the coolest thing in the whole world, something you have probably never done. We petted a koala and fed kangaroos. I mean, that's like, I suppose, like maybe you going to the Grand Canyon, you said that that was like your experience, like you're finally there and you're seeing it. Like being there with kangaroos today... I mean, that was like the most surreal experience in the whole world. So thank you for that wonderful experience. And it's just neat to be here this evening. Also, another person I wanted to tell you that I know really well is Bob Vaco. I believe that Bob Vaco had something to do with his church, didn't he? Exactly. So Bob Vaco, actually, he was the one that basically trained us to church planting. If you didn't know, he's totally into church planting, Okay. But uh, he, so he, he's the one that gave us the whole idea of church planning. We worked with him for 10 years in Paris, and then uh, he moved on from France, came on down here. So I've been writing him, letting him know that I'm here, so he's all excited. And so it's been really fun to know that our worlds are kind of meshed and um, together that way. So the uh, conference this evening, as you know, is witnessing to your world. And so uh, I was asked to come and talk about the subject of witnessing and missions and it is with great pleasure uh, that I'm doing that. Meg already spoke to the ladies uh, a couple of days ago already. And so maybe not really on that subject, but it was. It was on dealing with your emotions. And there are a lot of emotions when you do this kind of work. And so my job is more directly linked to witnessing and missions. <clears throat> so before I start this evening with my first session, um, I will go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to really bless this time. Okay. <clears throat> Father, it's a great privilege this evening to be together, to be able to open the word, to be able to be with you in your presence. Thank you for all that you're doing in each one of our lives, Lord, for the way you call us to yourself through unusual circumstances for all of us, Lord. One day we weren't Christians, and one day as you crashed into our lives through your son, Jesus Christ, then we became born again. And so I pray that this evening as we Look at the incredible privilege of knowing you and seeing your work in evangelism, that I, it would be a great encouragement to all of us, knowing that evangelism, though it seems very scary, is actually quite easy. And so I pray you would inspire us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So this evening, uh, to launch our evening, um, Jeff thought it would be a good idea for me to sort of tell you my story. So I've entitled this message this evening, simply this, one verse, five minutes, and a little bit of courage. One verse, five minutes, and a little bit of courage. And what I would like to tell you and show you are what the key components to evangelism are, okay? Um, to do that, I would like to do two things. I would like to start by simply telling you my story, um, the way the Lord led me to Christ. You'll see the, the circumstances are rather unusual. And I'll tell you the story, and once I tell you the story, then we're going to go to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to look at the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And out of that story and my story, we're going to sort of put them together. I would like to show you the three key components to effective evangelism. Now, evangelism is very scary for people if you're a Christian. I hope that tonight that will diffuse the fear of evangelism. That's my whole goal, that you would go, hey, this is pretty easy. I might be able to do this, okay? So, let's back up, and let me just tell you my story. So, I was born, as Jeff said earlier, I was born in Paris, France, in 1956. Both my parents were Americans. My father was from Colorado, my mother from Oklahoma, 
And uh, my father was a businessman, my mom a French major, and they decided to come to Europe to work for my grandfather, who had a company, to sell a particular product in Europe. So they came to, to Paris, and I was born in 1956 in Paris. I have two older brothers. And after my birth, in 1956, a war broke out between France and Egypt called the Suez War. And so many foreigners left France and they fled, fled. They left France to go to other nations. So my parents decided to go to Geneva, Geneva, Switzerland, which is right near. If you look at a map, I'll show you a map a little later. You'll see that Geneva is surrounded by France. And so it was very easy for them to go to Geneva. So they did. And I was raised in Geneva, Switzerland as an expat kid, which means we were all American inside our house and all Swiss or Genevan on the outside of our house. So I was raised as a normal kid, went to a local public school, then to the International School of Geneva, and we went to a church. We were churchgoers. We went to the Episcopalian Church of Geneva. So what I remember really well about that church is the coffee, great coffee, horrible gospel. I actually never heard the gospel in that church in my entire life, but which is amazing is about two months ago, that church called me up and asked me to go preach in it. So I did. It was the coolest thing I ever did in my life. But anyway, that's a whole different story, okay? So I was raised in that church and in that city. Never heard the gospel in my whole life. Um, at the age of 15, my parents thought it would be good for me to go off to boarding school. So I went to boarding school in Switzerland and then off to New Jersey in America to the Lawrenceville Prep School and then on to Syracuse University in upstate New York. Now, these were 1970s, and I became a hippie. We were not Christians in our family, so you've got to imagine me. I might show you a picture a little later. <clears throat> you might imagine me with hair down here, ponytail, okay, smoking a lot of dope, doing a lot of stuff I shouldn't have been doing, living a life of immorality. That was my last years of high school and my first year of college. A total party guy. So I did decent grades. My goal in life was to be an international businessman like my dad. And so I studied Spanish. My Spanish and major was Spanish and language literature. And my minor was sort of business. I wanted to be an international businessman. But I partied my way through my first year. And after my first year of college, I was feeling really gross inside my heart, thinking, you know, there's something wrong here. And I don't know what's wrong, but there's something wrong with my life. I had no idea what it was. So I thought, I'm going to take a year off of college and just travel the world. And my mom thought that was a great idea. My parents thought, that's great. You know, young, go, go discover the world. So summer 1976, I quit college and I went back to Geneva, got a job working as a waiter in a restaurant. And um, is that rain I'm hearing out there? Oh, wow. It really rains here, doesn't it? Boy. And uh, so I came back to Geneva and I, and I uh, worked as a waiter in a restaurant. And that got boring, so I thought, okay, I'm going. I'm taking my trip. So I took a backpack, put about 20 pounds of clothes or a little less, everything I needed, and I took my passport, and I took my money. My budget was three U.S. dollars a day. Now, in those days, you can get a lot farther with three bucks, okay? But that was my budget, and passport, money, and I thought, I'm taking off. So I took my backpack went to the Geneva train station. It was June 23rd, 1976. I was 19 years old. I got on the train. So we're not going to show the pictures yet, but I'm just going to show you here. I'm going to trace the map, okay? So this is Switzerland. For the first month, I went from Switzerland through Germany, Hungary, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Romania, Yugoslavia, Greece. My goal, go to Greece and get a tan. Oh, yeah. So that's exactly what I did. I went to Greece, picked six islands, and I island hopped for six weeks, got a tan, living the life of a king, you know, doing anything I wanted to. And you know what happened? After six weeks, I got empty in my heart. There was something missing. Oh, I was living the life of a king. I was sleeping on the beaches, just having a blast. You're not allowed to do that anymore. But uh, it was great in a way, but I was feeling empty. There was something missing in my heart. So after a while, I met a guy who said, hey, no, 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 no. You know, I, I figured maybe I needed to get a job. And this guy said, you need to go to Israel and go get a job on a kibbutz. You know, kibbutz like a farm. I said, cool, I'm going. So I went to Israel. And the next morning, they signed me up for the kibbutz Betashita between Afula and Bichan. And I was in the olive groves at 4 a.m. picking olives off the trees. 
That was a blast for about two days. And I began to realize, you know what? Nothing is cutting it. Nothing is cutting it. I always started feeling empty in my heart. So I was getting worried. I mean, I was 19 years old going through like a life crisis, you know, thinking this is like weird. So I lasted about three or four weeks in that kibbutz. I left the kibbutz, went down to Jerusalem uh, to kind of walk around as a, as a tourist. And I got a little guide and it said, go see the garden tomb. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know there's two potential candidate places for the uh, crucifixion and burial of Jesus. It's uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and then the Garden Tomb. So I went to the Garden Tomb. I didn't know about all that, but I went to the Garden Tomb. And so I walked in. I was the first one there. And it said, walk here and you'll see the tomb of Jesus. So I walked in. Boom. There was the tomb of Jesus. And I just thought, whoa, that is weird. I mean, that is like bizarre. You know, you're standing in front of the tomb of Jesus Christ. And I'm going, whoa. So I walked inside the tomb of Jesus Christ. It's like I'm in it. It's empty, obviously. And I'm in it. And I'm looking at the place where the body of Jesus has been buried. And folks, I got cold chills over my entire body. And I walked out, and then it said, go over here to Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. So I walked to Golgotha, and I was standing right in front of like the Skullhead Mountain. And there was a plaque, and it said, this is where Jesus was crucified. And I began to cry and to weep and to sob like a baby. And I didn't even know why. So then I thought, ooh, this is like weird. So I stopped crying, you know, dried up my tears, forgot about it. So I left and stayed in Israel another couple of months, uh, bumming around down in the south, went to Noeba, which is Egypt today, went, you know, just spending a lot of time getting tans. I was really tanned. And, uh, and then I was getting empty again. And it was this constant feeling of emptiness in my life. So I met a guy who said, look, John, if you really want to find out what life is all about, you need to go to Asia. I said, oh, I'm going. So, I left Israel, went back to Greece, and took a train up to Istanbul, Turkey. Now, you're probably more aware of this than a lot of people in America, but uh, Europe and Asia are divided by a bridge in Istanbul, right? So, you got Asia here, then you got, well, looking at the other way around, you'd have Europe here, and you have Asia here, and that would be the bridge in Istanbul. And so, in those days, all those countries were open for travel. So, he said, go to Istanbul. So, I went to Istanbul, and there were all these buses and cars and people coming and going. And I thought, this is great. And I saw a bright blue bus and it said, Riders Wanted for India for $40. I thought, now that is a deal. Now, I didn't know where India was. So I bought a map and I looked and I thought, ooh, this is long. So it was a six-week bus ride. Okay, so we left Turkey. And if you're looking at the map again, we're going through Turkey, went through Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. Well, a whole lot happened. It was the freak route, they call it. A lot of people were going to Nepal for drugs. So this bright blue bus was a bunch of Germans, actually, um, several others, including me, and they were going to Nepal to fill up the bus with drugs and come back. So I thought, wow, this is an adventure, so let's go. So we went through these countries, and um, no drugs in Turkey nor Iran, but Afghanistan, the drugs came out, and we got busted in Iraq, Afghanistan, and they confiscated our passports, threatened to put us into prison. And that was the scariest day of my life. And I thought to myself, John, what are you doing? I mean, this is not you. This is just not you. So they finally did not arrest us. And we continued our way. And I was just really confused now. Got to India. And all my friends began to pull out syringes. And they started shooting up on heroin. And I thought, that's not me. That's not me. You know, we all have a conscience level. Mine was somewhere, but it was flashing, man. It was really flashing. And I thought, that's it. So I got off the bus in New Delhi. We've been, I'd been gone about five months now, five and a half months. And um, very bewildered now. On top of that, I'm in India. The poverty. Man, I'd never seen anything like this before in my life. I mean, there were people sleeping on the road, I guess dying on the road. I heard. I mean, I, you know, I can't remember the details. I, I remember one day I saw a leper. I mean, I saw a leopard just gross, you know, and he was begging. And I looked at him and I was just feeling so guilty, thinking, you know, why, why him there? Why me there? All the existential questions. Why, why, why? 
And it was very confusing, and there were red dots, and there were cows everywhere, and dust everywhere, and, and I, you know, it, it was like a weird deal, you know, it was like, it was like a, it, it was just an, an incredible experience. And I got scared. I couldn't understand life anymore. And I thought, I'm going home, that's it, I can't deal with this anymore. So I always had enough money for a plane ticket to go home. So I went and bought a plane ticket. The next day, I was going home. So I'm walking down Janpath Avenue. I think they say Janpat. Something like that, right? Yeah. Um, toward Connaught Place. And I was walking down there. I was staying in a place that was called the Ringo House. I was paying 30 cents a night. It was really cheap, okay, on the roof. But I was walking down the sidewalk, and as I was walking down the sidewalk, I saw a guy. He was a Westerner, long hair, handing out pieces of paper to people. He was a missionary. He was a missionary. I'd never heard of a missionary in my life. He was handing out tracts, Bible, gospel tracts to people. So we started talking. Really nice guy. He was from Holland. He said, John, let's go drink a Coke. So we went to a restaurant. We had a Coke. And we were just talking. And then he said this. He says, John, can I show you one verse in the Bible? Oh, man. Okay, I did know some Christians back at Syracuse. The problem with Christians, they all looked just like me tonight. They had short hair. They had nice suits, nice carried Bibles. They went to churches. Ugh, couldn't stand Christians. Couldn't stand them. So this guy's saying, can I show you one verse in the Bible? So everything in me just sort of reacted. Then he said this, and try it. This works, okay? He said, John, this is the best seller of all times. You need to know one verse. That works each time. You need to know one verse in the best seller. No book has sold more ever than this book, the Bible. So I said, okay. Fatal okay. Guess what verse he opened to? John 3.16. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I said, great, thank you. He said, no, 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 no. Let's analyze the verse. <laughs> Got nervous, okay? I said, okay. So he says, for God so loved the world. Who's the world? So I'm going, uh, world means world. He goes, exactly. He loves Indians. He loves Congolese. He loves Americans. He loves Brazilians. He loves South Africans. He loves Australians. He loves everyone. Then he said, for God so loved John, me. For God so loved John that he gave his only begotten son. Who's that? Flashback. Israel. I'd been in the tomb of Jesus. I'd been at Golgotha. And now, for the first time in my life, I mean, I didn't know the Bible at all, of course, but it's like the, the words jumped out of me. It's like, whoa, there's something historical here. I'd been in the tomb. I'd been on Golgotha. So for God so loved John that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again from the dead to conquer sin, conquer death, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then he said, John, you have a choice. Two possibilities. Number one, you can reject Jesus Christ, reject his sacrifice for you, reject the fact that he died and rose again from the dead to conquer your sin. Just reject God, reject his son. If you do that, you will perish. You will spend all eternity separate from a holy God that hates sin, and therefore he will condemn you to an eternal hell. Or... You could do exactly what the verse says and believe in him. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust him, if you embrace him, if you repent of your sin, realize that your sin is a holy offense to a God who is holy, who is ready to judge you, Jesus Christ, his son, who died and rose again, will come into your life, wash your sin away, and grant you eternal life now. What do you want to do? Oh, man, it's like, whoa. My heart was pounding. And I knew what he was saying was true. But I got scared. I walked out. The guy followed me down the street, spun me around. He said, John, this is your last chance. I said, okay. So right there on Janpath Avenue, November 2nd, 1976, I bowed my head. Now, I had my doubts. I wasn't 100% sure. But I thought, you know what? If this is true, 
Well, no, I said, yeah, first of all, I said, if this is not true, nothing will happen. But if this is true, everything will happen. So I bowed my head and I said, Jesus Christ, if you can really come into my life, forgive me my sin and give me eternal life. I said, do it now. No thunder, (laughs) no lightning, no voice from heaven. You know what happened? At that instant, the God of the universe invaded my life. At that instant, Jesus Christ forgave all my sin, past, present, and future, and gave me eternal life. Boom. Just like that. The whole thing instantly. Because that's exactly what he said he would do in John 3.16. And I knew it. I knew something very, very significant had happened to my life. But I didn't know what. So I walked away from that guy. Now, I want you to really hear this. That guy... I have no idea who he is today. I have no idea. You know what he did? That guy used one verse, five minutes, with a little bit of courage. He totally changed my life by proclaiming the gospel to me. Let me ask you a question. Do you have the expression cold turkey evangelism here? You know what that means? Cold turkey evangelism is like you've got two minutes with someone or five minutes and you go, okay, you know, should I just like throw John 3.16 to this person? And you're going, eh, it's not really worth it. Hey, folks, it's worth it. I believe in cold turkey evangelism because I am the result of it. I am the absolute result of it. Some guy who just took five minutes with one verse. So I walk away, I go back to my hotel. I mean, something radical has happened to me. I had two bags of hashish in my pockets. I got up in my hotel room and I saw my friends getting high. And I thought, this is stupid. I took out my hashish, gave it to the guys, never touched it again in my life. How do you explain that? It was like incredible. That was like the first hour. I had a Bible. Now, this is an amazing thing. Back at Syracuse, I knew one Christian. She was a Christian. I didn't really like her Christianity, but she was a great jazz flutist. And I play a little bit of boogie-woogie. And so we used to play a lot together. And she never pushed, she never pushed her religion on me, but I really liked her. The day I was leaving college... She, there was a little Gideon's new, you know those Gideon Bibles that you get? Well, mine was as crisp the last day of college than it was the first day of college because it was in my desk the whole time. And it was there on my desk. She saw it. She took it. She says, John, look, throw this in your backpack. You never know. I said, okay. Threw it in there. Forgot about it. Six months later, I'm in New Delhi. Just get saved. I'm going, whoa, I've got a New Testament in my backpack. So I go find the little thing. I've still got it, the green thing. And I begin to read it. And I just know that the Lord has completely transformed my life. I just know it. The next day, I get on the airplane. I mean, I know one verse. I turn to the man next to me. Sir, this is incredible. you got to hear this. He was a Muslim. And I tell him, sir, you need Jesus Christ. I mean, you are a sinner. And I didn't know John 3.16 very well, but I quoted the verse to him. And he told me, you have a real problem, man. He did not understand what I was trying to say to him. And I thought, I've got to stop. I can't go home yet. So I get off the plane in Bombay. The plane was going Geneva. I mean, uh, I think it was going Delhi, Bombay, Bombay, Zurich, or Geneva. So I get off the plane in Bombay. You could do that in those days. And I'm running out of money. And I heard that all these hippies were going to Goa because that's where they could go live on the beaches and eat bananas and coconuts and stuff. So I thought, I'm going with the hippies to, to, to Goa to think, to think about my new conversion. You know, I'm only like two days old in the Lord here. And so, uh, or no, one day old in the Lord. So I get on this uh, boat. And on the boat, I bump into some missionaries going to Goa. And so I'm so excited. So I go and I live with them for the next month. And they start pumping all the Bible to me and stuff. It's really exciting days for me. Just learning and learning and learning, drinking it all in. And um, then I finally leave and go back to Geneva uh, after a month. And uh, my, my poor parents, I mean, they just, you know, they see their son leaving as this like hippie freak coming back a Jesus freak. And they're going, whoa, another phase in his life. But this was not a phase. This was a radical conversion. And so I ended up going back to college, getting involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, because they evangelized. I loved, I loved evangelism. I thought it was fun to be able to just, you know, use, use tools to see people come to Christ. And then I graduated from college, and now I'm starting to wonder, wow, should I go in the ministry? I mean, I was loving the Bible. I, I, I cut my hair, by the way. My mom was real happy about that. 
and stopped all the bad stuff. Uh, and so that was kind of neat. But, uh, but I was just really sensing the call to the ministry somehow. And, um, and so I didn't know what to do. So I, I needed a job. So I became a flight attendant with Pan Am based in New York right after college. And one day I was at the crew lounge and I was waiting for a flight. And this friend comes in and says, John, John, I want to introduce you to a Christian flight attendant. So I met the most beautiful Christian flight attendant in Pan Am and I married her. It was Meg. That's right. So the Lord was so good. She was actually raised in Seattle, Washington. And when she was 16, she was uh, she went to Japan as an exchange student. And there one day in the solitude of Kyushu, the Kyushu Island, she had a little Billy Graham version of the Bible. And one day she read the instructions on how to become a Christian and embraced Christ as her savior, became a born again Christian in Japan, came back, finished college, Japanese major, language and literature, and became a flight attendant, went to New York and ta-da, we met. So that was really cool. So we met, uh, fell in love, and then uh, Pan Am, I guess I killed the airline because Pan Am died. And so uh, I needed another job, and I thought, this is great. Now I can go into the ministry. So I ended up going out to Los Angeles. Uh, John MacArthur, I'd heard of him, and I really liked his style of preaching, so I thought I'm going to go get trained by him. So I went to Talbot Theological Seminary. And uh, during that whole time, we began to sense the real desire to go to Geneva, Switzerland. That's what I felt since I was raised there. I thought, this is crazy. I was raised in the city of Calvin, never heard the gospel once. That's not right. So I asked God if I could go back to Geneva and be a preacher in my hometown. And so 30 years ago, I was ordained. And then Meg and I left, uh, sent out as missionaries. We went to Paris to 10 years first. And then 20 years ago, uh, went to Geneva. So we've been in Geneva ever since. And nine years ago, we planted a brand new church called L'Église Évangélique Internationale de Genève. You're welcome to come. Okay. It's eeig.ch, all French-speaking international church. Very exciting. We have 42 nationalities in the church. Maybe I'll tell you more about that later on. But anyway, so, and that's, that's been the thrill of our lives. So what's interesting about this whole story, my friends, is that that missionary, that missionary, has no idea what happened to me. Zero. No idea. And yet, one day, on November 2nd, 1976, he wasn't a massive theologian. He knew one verse. He knew it pretty well. He took five minutes of his time. He had some courage. And he told me the truth about the gospel. And that completely changed my life. I don't know who he is. He doesn't know who I am. That's a really important point. So with that, let's go to Acts chapter 8. This will go pretty fast, okay? But I hope it will be very exciting for you. Acts chapter 8. I told you I would give you the three components, the three key components to effective evangelism. And so what I want to show you tonight is that God gets all the credit with evangelism. You don't need to be this incredible theologian. Theology is great. Going to school and seminary is great. But to be an evangelist, you don't need to do that. Let me show you how it works, okay? What are the three key components to effective evangelism? Number one, I'm just going to give it to you, then I'll show this to you. Number one, there must be the preparation of the messenger. There must be the preparation of the messenger. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Let's start there. It says this, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and he went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch. Let's just stop right there. In this particular story, we see that God leads, really, I don't know if a I could put it this way, but the Ethiopian eunuch that we're going to look at in just a minute is led to the Lord by a messenger. There must be a messenger. And before ministry or evangelism can happen, God needs to find the right messenger. It's kind of weird to think about. Let me ask you this. Could God, there are a lot of clouds right now, okay, uh, here in Adelaide. Could God, if he wanted to, take those clouds and write John 3.16 in the sky in English? Could he do that? Does he do that? Why not? You ever thought about that? You do have clear days, don't you? Do you see the stars sometimes? Okay. <laughs> I need to come back sometime, apparently, okay? Okay, now on a clear day, there's, uh, there's millions of stars out there, right? Okay, now could God take all those stars 
and write John 3.16 in English over Australia, maybe in French over France. Could he do that? Does he do that? Why not? It'd be so easy. Well, I'll tell you why not. Because that's not the way he designed it. It's as simple as that. How did he design this to happen? Well, let me read you. Matthew 28, 18. You probably know this really, really well, probably by heart. And Jesus came up and spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. He's talking to who? His disciples. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you to do. So, his goal, his method is to send messengers. That's always the way it's been. But you ask, but what kind of messenger? Aha. Well, in the story before us, we see what kind of messenger. If we go back to Acts 8 here. He says, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip in verse 26. Stop right there. Philip. Okay, here's the messenger. So what we need to do is to find out who Philip is to find out why God picked him for this particular task. Well, to find out who he is, we need to go back to Acts chapter 6. You remember the situation? Jerusalem church has been birthed after the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, and it grew big time. There's thousands of people, and the whole excitement of, of there, well, these Greek widows had been neglected in the distribution of food. Crisis in the church. And so, they have to try and remedy this. And to remedy the situation, they pick seven men. Acts 6, verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, number two man, and Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, etc. But, so they pick seven men. The number two man is our man. Number two man is our man. Now, what do we find out about this guy? Well, go back to verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men, first of all, of good reputation. Aha! To be an agent of the Lord, you must, first of all, have a good reputation. You know what that means? A good reputation is what people are saying about you when you're not around. What do people say about you when you're not around? That's a reputation when you're not there. He had a great reputation. I'm thinking about this. This is a church of several thousand people. They select seven men. He must have been a pretty extraordinary man to be number two on the list. Very extraordinary man. Number two, by the way, Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be more desirable than great wealth. A reputation is critical. Number two, it says in verse three that he was full of the Holy Spirit. He had a life controlled by the Spirit. He lived a holy life. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That means his life was controlled by the Holy Spirit, which means that his life manifested holiness. Thirdly, it was full of wisdom, verse 3 says. Full of wisdom. You know, in France, when a, a, a child is obedient, we say, il est sage. Il est sage. He is wise. Why? Because wisdom is knowledge applied, right? When you obey, that means you're wise because you know that you're supposed to obey and you do. And this is what it is here. When he says he's full of wisdom, that means he's a man who really walked the walk. Fourth, he was submissive. When he was proposed by the apostles, verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Well, he accepted the job. He didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. No, he just accepted the job. He seems to have been a submissive man, humble, ready to do what the apostles asked. He was also humble in verse 6. It says, and these they brought before the apostles. And after praying for them, they laid their hands on them. You know what's interesting to me? This guy was willing to serve in a small menial task. I mean, you know, it looks, I mean, serving widows... Okay, that's probably helpful. I mean, it was obviously very helpful. But it's not what I would call a glamorous ministry. It's not really glamorous serving widows. But you know what? He was humble. By the way, do you know why he had a good reputation? Because he served faithfully in small things. That's how you get a good reputation. You get a good reputation because when people ask you to do something that might be menial, so sure, I'll be glad to do it. And suddenly, 
people go, wow, I like this person. I mean, they are really, really humble and, 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 and ready to serve. And this is what happened to him. Now, what's interesting, so here's this guy. He's in the church, humble, serving widows and all that. Acts 8 hits. Persecution in the church. Look at Acts 8, verse 1. Saul was in a hearty agreement with putting him to death. Stephen was put to death, the first martyr of the church. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Look at this. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. This is our guy. This is the guy serving widows in the church, feeding widows. Okay, look at this. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. And they, their heart, and he, uh, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing, for in the case of many wet, unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was such rejoicing in that city. Wow! So here's a man on the one end who's serving widows. On the other hand, he's a mighty man of the word. He's not only a godly man, willing to serve in small tasks. He's a man mighty in the word of God, mighty in proclaiming the gospel. God had even given him the gift of healings and the gift of miracles. So this incredible ministry is happening in Samaria. I mean, people are coming to Christ. People are being healed. It's like out of control cool. I mean, it must have been a very thrilling time. And we see, uh, well, anyway. And then comes verse 26. Thrilling ministry in Samaria. Suddenly God says, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, get up. Go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. This is the seventh trait that we see this man. He was obedient. I mean, he's in the middle of this thriving ministry. And the angel says, hey, I need you. Let's go. And he's like, gets yanked out of Samaria. He asks no questions. He asks no explanation. He knew it was from the Lord. He just obeys. He just obeys. He could have reasoned, but God. You're making a huge mistake by sending me to the desert. To the desert. Look what's happening here in Samaria. I mean, what am I going to go do in the desert? There's nothing in the desert. Why on earth would I go down there? Well, you know what? Philip knew that there was no better place to be than in the center of God's will. So he goes. So you know what we learned here? God is looking for messengers. God is looking for messengers. I've often thought back at the missionary that led me to Christ. All I know about him is that he's Dutch. And I've thought to myself, what did it take for that guy to be on Jan Path Avenue, November 2nd, 1976, ready to lead me to Christ? That guy's inspired me. This is one of the reasons I'm a missionary today. I've always thought, wow, if he did that for me, shouldn't I do that for others? So we've been there for 30 years. It's very neat. All he did was use one verse, five minutes, and a little bit of courage in my life. Changed my life. God used him. Let me ask you a question. I'll bet you 10 to 1 Adelaide has a lot of people who don't know Christ. If God was looking for a messenger today, would he pick you? Are you ready to be deployed? What's the second ingredient to effective ministry? Well, there must be, number one, the messenger. Secondly, there must be a recipient. There must be a recipient. God prepares the recipient. It is most interesting to see how God prepares Philip for this divine encounter. But it's also interesting to see how God prepared the Ethiopian eunuch for this encounter. So what do we know about the guy? It goes real fast. Look, verse 27. So he got up, this is Philip, and he went. 
And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting on his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go up and join the chariot. So first of all, we find out he was Ethiopian from the country of Nubia, which today is southern Egypt or Sudan. We find out also he was a eunuch. He was a castrated man so as to guarantee sexual irreproachability as a guardian of the king's harem. Also, we find out he was an important government official. Verse 27 tells us he was a minister of the treasury under the queen Candace, queen of Ethiopia. You know what? He was in charge of all of her money. I mean, this guy was a top guy in the government of this queen, probably a very, very wealthy man, probably traveling not alone with an entourage. We know he is wealthy because he had also a copy of a manuscript. They were expensive in those days. Verse 27, we find out he was a religious man. Yes, he says he had come to Jerusalem to worship. No doubt, for the Pentecost celebrations in Jerusalem mentioned in Acts 2. That means he was probably a pagan convert to Judaism. He was a Jewish convert, Gentile convert to Judaism. He had come to celebrate Pentecost in Jerusalem. He was going home. He had traveled huge distances for this religious pilgrimage. Now, what we know is that he's also a searching man. He's a searching man because we know, first of all, that he's not saved since he gets saved in the story. He's probably following the prescriptions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And if you read Matthew 23, you know what Jesus felt about them. He blasts them and condemns them to hell because they were leading people astray, making them twice as much a son of hell as they were. So Jesus says these guys were hellbound and their proselytes were double hellbound. So this guy was probably totally lost in a religious system, thinking he was doing good. So he's seeking the truth. And what's so cool here is that he's reading the Bible. Verse 28, he was returning and sitting on his chair and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how well, how could I unless someone guides me? And the passage, verse 32, is this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth. I'll come back, that, come back to that in a moment. So, what's interesting in this story is that God is preparing the messenger, but he's also preparing the recipient. He's preparing the Ethiopian eunuch. This guy is really searching. He's ready to be picked. When we first came to France, Megan and me, in 1986, we were looking for an apartment in a little town called L'Arbrel, near Lyon, France. And um, there was a baker in town, one of these French bakeries. Oh, man, deadly. And there was a little sign they were running an apartment. So I walk in, and uh, this little French man comes out with a white duck, you know, the hat and white apron. And he goes, hello, what brings you to town? I said, well, I'm a pastor. He goes, oh! So I go, oh! He goes, oh! I go, oh! He says, you're a pastor? Yes. Then he says this, no joke. He says, Mr. Glass, my wife and I have just finished reading the entire Bible and we understand nothing. He says, could you explain it to us? Inside, I'm going, whoa! And outside, I'm composed. I said, of course, we would be glad to do that, you know? But I just thought, this is unbelievable. Here we are in the middle of nowhere, France, and this guy is searching. He has read the entire Bible. And he says, I don't get it. And then he asked me, can you explain it? We started two Bible studies with him and all of his neighbors. It was amazing. You know what? 
I often think back at myself, why on earth did God take me from Geneva, Switzerland, all the way to New Delhi, India, to bring me to Christ? I don't know why. I must have been a really hard case. I think that must have been. Because I think it was during that trip where God just broke me and he broke me and he broke me and he broke me to the point where in Delhi, at last, at last, I was ready. I wonder how many people in Adelaide and Sydney and anywhere else in this country are just like the eunuch, are just like the baker in France. They're trying to figure it out. They're lost, but they're so close. I'll bet you there's thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. So, what's the key to effective evangelism? Number one, the preparation of the messenger. Number two, the preparation of the recipient. Okay, here's the third one. Are you ready? This is coolest. This is so great. The third key, the third component to effective evangelism, number one, the preparation of the messenger. Number two, the preparation of the recipient. Number three, the preparation of the circumstances where God puts them together. God brings them together. God brings the messenger and God brings the recipient and whammo, he brings them together. This is what happens here. I mean, this story is like incredible, okay? I mean, totally incredible. So we find out about the eunuch in verse 27 and 28. And then look at this, it's just amazing details. And the Spirit said to Philip, verse 29, go up and join this chariot. So Philip runs. So Philip's in this desert road, and suddenly this, this chariot comes with the entourage, and the Spirit says, run up to it. So he says, okay. So he's running, literally he's running, and the chariot's going. That's what it says here. And he... Um, he was returning and sitting on his chariot. Verse 28, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join the chariot. So he runs up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. So he's next to the chariot and he's like watching this guy, listening to this guy, and he's, he's hearing him read the chariot, I mean, the, the Bible, okay? And he said to him, do you understand what you are reading? Excuse me, sir, are you on the chariot? Do you understand what you're reading? And the guy goes, oh, no, I don't. Amazing, I do not. He said, well, how could I, unless someone guides me? Hey, will you please come up on the chariot and explain it to me? I mean, this is like an incredible story. It's like, oh, you're here. You understand it. Yes, I do. Okay, great. Please come up. Okay, great invitation. So he comes into the chariot. And what does he say? Well, how could I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture, which he was reading, was this. Verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Wow! What an incredible invitation. Can you please explain to me what the Bible says and who it's talking about? Yes, it's about Christ. That's exactly what he answers. Philip opened his mouth, verse 35, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Folks, isn't this amazing? He did not have an iPhone on him with 18,000 Bibles in 22 different languages. He knew the Old Testament from memory. And he was able to guide this guy to Christ. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. You know what he included in his gospel presentation? And they went along the road. They came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? He said to him in his gospel presentation, as soon as you come to Christ, you've got to get baptized. That's just part of the deal. So the guy goes, hey, here's water. Can I get baptized? Ah, not too fast. This is not in the better manuscripts, but it is in my Bible. Verse 37, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Even if that is not in the better manuscripts, that is a truism. That is what you must believe to be able to be baptized, to be saved. You've got to believe that. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Wow. You see how God gets the credit here? I often think about this. I mean, why did God have to take this Dutch guy, take him to New Delhi, and this other guy from Switzerland, bring him to New Delhi, and whammo, put him together on November 2nd, 1976, to lead me to Christ? See, God gets all the glory here. He gets all the glory. 
And you know what? That man was the first convert in Africa. First convert in Africa. And I wonder if Philip ever heard back from him. Probably not. I mean, I have no idea. Didn't have Facebook in those days, you know. But it's true. So, those are the three key components to evangelism. So let me ask you this. We're in the messenger discussion tonight, right? We are the messengers, in a way. Let me ask you this. If God had someone in this town that needed to hear the gospel today, or tomorrow, or the next day, would he pick you? Would he pick you? You go, oh, I don't know, I'm a little nervous. Let me ask you this. Could you articulate the gospel using one verse? John 3.16. In five minutes. If you can, all you need is a little bit of courage. And that we all do. I'm a professional missionary. I get paid to do it. I still get scared. I do. I still get scared. It's just true. So we all need a bit of courage. I'm preaching to myself tonight. May God encourage us just to be a little more courageous as we articulate the gospel. And who knows? Who knows the lives God will cause us to encounter that we might lead them to Christ until his return. Amen? Lord, we thank you so much. So much for your word. Thank you for the way you changed our lives through the gospel, Lord. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your son and his sacrifice on our behalf. God, I just pray you would make all of us a little more courageous messengers as we use one verse in five minutes with a bit of courage. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we all stand up and sing the closing hymn together?